Okay, just a quick note. We are accepting submissions for the shorts. So if you want to write for the diaries or you've got a story to tell, we are figuring that out for 2019 right now. So stay tuned to the credits for more info. Thanks. We're in business to save the planet. And we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can. Patagonia. Build the best product. Cause no unnecessary harm. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks and Boston Brewing. What's going on, Isaiah? How's it going, Fitz? Uh, pretty good. I think that the last time you were on the show, I believe, <laughs> it was the Tales of Terror and you were cowering in your bedroom defending your house with a rifle against skinwalkers who were maliciously throwing furniture around the front yard and leaving weird white circles on your door. Hopefully you're doing better than that now. (laughs) Yes and no. Uh, It's not quite as desperate or terrifying, but things have been a little dark. How so? What's, What's going on? Well, it just seems like every time I turn around, there's something bad going on in the world. Maybe it's just that I'm more aware of them, but the complexity of all these different problems, it just, I've just been feeling pretty powerless. I don't, I don't think I'm alone in that feeling. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, and I, and I definitely think that you, you are not alone in that feeling. Do you end up feeling that way? Uh, yes and no. Um, mostly no though. Um, obviously, I don't like feeling powerless, and I also don't like feeling totally checked out, you know? That seems like a sort of a weird placebo to me that doesn't seem to work. You know, I, I think to, one, feel engaged and to not feel powerless, I think what I do is I look for places in my broader community where I can help. Obviously, there are things like the Bearsers Education Center that we did last year and a lot of the work we do with duct tape and beer with our friends at not-for-profits. And I, so I choose things that I've, that I've put a lot of time into in the past, and, and I just feel a little bit better and have a little more authority when I talk about it in that sense. And I'm able to break it down into to smaller pieces, and then I start to get a sense of how I, as an individual, can have an impact. If I don't have an issue like that, like if it's just this big, giant cluster of a problem, to be frank, I just don't bother with them. Like the other day I read some article about nuclear arsenals in the world and how it's this terrible mistake waiting to happen and that one mistake could lead to like a total collapse. And I'm sure that's true and I'm sure nobody wants to imagine that. And I think my instinct when I read something like that is just like, oh my God. And then I just say to myself, I can't worry about that. So I don't. And I think that's part survival mechanism and it's just reality. Like I don't think I have a whole lot of like ability to change um, what's happening with our nuclear arsenals or something like that. I hope that someone out there with some understanding and some agency in the issue um, is doing something, but but that person is not me. So I worry about 
the little corners that I've worked hard to understand and hard to uh, improve. And that's what I tend to focus on. Um, You've got a story for us today about complicated problems and hope. And motorcycles. And motorcycles. Um, like Harleys or crotch rockets. No, 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 like the ones you ride on dirt roads in Columbia through the jungle. So this last summer, I got inspired by my friend Janelle. She's been working for the last couple of years to fight against wildlife trafficking. And she's been living off of the back of a motorcycle and using that motorcycle to go to super, super remote places. So this last summer, instead of going into the Cascades and climbing mountains, I bought a ticket to Columbia to go join her for a week. And I didn't totally know what to expect, but when I went down there, I found three completely different groups of people from three completely different cultures all coming together to fight this really complex issue of wildlife trafficking. Um, Cool. I know nothing about this. It sounds like we are about to go for a pretty wild ride. Yep. I'm Isaiah Branch Boyle. I'm Fitzcahal. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Daylight hit the beach like a hangover. The few people that were awake hid in the sparse shade. Despite the garbage, the three men in front of me walked barefoot through the sand, and they too were blinding. Their pure white, hand-spun clothes contrasted against their jet black hair. And as we walked across the beach, the people lounging in the shade turned to watch. When we first met the Kogi, we met them in the city of Santa Marta. From there, we went to Taganga, which is a notorious beach. This is journalist and activist Janelle Kaz, and the beach we're standing on is in Northeast Colombia. Taganga is known for drugs and sex trafficking. The three men dressed in white headed towards a large rock outcropping. We walked towards one of their sacred sites and we watched them make these payments, these pagamientos, which is taking cotton from near the tops of the Sierra Nevadas of Santa Marta and bringing those cotton pieces down and sort of imbue them with thoughts and intentions of places that they're connecting or intentions of blessings and thanks for services rendered from the earth. So they dig in their bags and they pull out these strands of cotton and they invited us to also make payments and put thoughts of everything that we were bringing with us, all of our food, all of our equipment, our gear, and what intentions we had for this trip. And then, the trip began. When I introduced Janelle, I didn't give her full credit. Janelle is much more than a journalist. She describes herself as an anti-wildlife trafficking motorcycle journalist, aka the Moto Gypsy. First and foremost, 
Her universe revolves around protecting wild animals and the fight against wildlife trafficking. Janelle is also a gypsy, in the literal sense of the word. She's a descendant of Polish gypsies and has carved out a life for herself on the road. For the past five years, she's been living full-time off the back of a motorcycle. I fell in love with motorcycles and speed when I was a teenager. I just wanted to ride it on the back of any, anybody's bike that would take me and have them go as fast as they possibly could. <laughs> so eventually I just got to a point where I didn't want to need someone else for that experience. When I was 19, I took out a loan and purchased a Kawasaki Ninja and didn't tell my parents. The decision to begin living on a motorcycle, it came after a really tough time in my life where I felt like I had the capacity to let go of everything. And I had some things in storage in Seattle and I just got rid of all of it. I can't describe how freeing that feels and how good <laughs> it feels to to be liberated from those anchors or those attachments. Since that moment, Janelle's lived a crazy life. For five years, she rode a dirt bike on the dirt roads of Laos, sleeping in a hammock, then returning back to the States to speak about wildlife trafficking and to earn money from odd jobs for her next trip. And while at first glance that might sound like the ultimate dirtbag way of exploring the world's back roads, there's something deeper that connects her travels. Wildlife trafficking is the illegal trade of a wildlife, either alive or its body parts. Often people don't realize the far-reaching implications that the illegal trade of wildlife have. This trade is not just a localized problem. It's a huge international problem with, you know, deep roots in organized crime. Wildlife is often trafficked by the same people in the same routes, sometimes in the same cargo, as drugs, weapons, and even humans. Although the textbook definition is simple, the issue is complex. People's motivations for being involved in the trade range from hunger to greed. Often the people who poach animals from the jungle are simply motivated by the hungry mouths of their children, and like any of us, would do anything to feed them. The people who smuggle wildlife are attracted to it because the profit margins are high and the punishment for wildlife trafficking is less severe than drug or weapons trafficking. It's a byproduct of globalism, and the demand often comes from outside the countries. A huge driver of it is Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine. It's the number one consumer of illegally trafficked wildlife goods. The second highest consumer is the United States. And how does the motorcycle fit into all of this work against the wildlife trafficking? Well, I mean, firstly, I don't think that I can live without motorcycles. I love every bit of motorcycle travel, even when it's not comfortable or fun. Um, but secondly, I mean, 
I wouldn't be able to arrive in many of these project locations without my own transportation. The motorcycle also provides Janelle with a unique perspective to share her story to an audience that doesn't normally hear about conservation issues. I write for various motorcycle magazines, a lot of them adventure riding focused, so mostly with motorcycle travel, but also lifestyle magazines like Meta Magazine out of Colorado, and I'm working on some pieces for Iron and Air. You know, I'm in this weird reality where I'm sort of using my my status as a woman traveling alone on a motorcycle as a way to talk about conservation to people who otherwise might not care or listen. So it's kind of a weird realm, but at the same time, it's one of my favorite bridges that I've ever built is between this thriving motorcycle community worldwide and wildlife conservation. Typical trip for Janelle starts with claustrophobia. Long flights with little leg room, crowded trains, packed buses, all leading to a city with narrow streets and stacked apartments. She has a to-do list, handwritten and already crumpled, lost somewhere in her luggage. The first task, buy a motorcycle. Something that can handle highway and dirt roads, carry some luggage and won't leave her stranded in the jungle. When she finds the right bike, it's a matter of surviving the traffic. Finally, there's a moment at the edge of the city when the traffic decompresses, the bike starts to fly, and the wind cools the built-up sweat. In the saddlebags is the to-do list, with locations, wildlife rehabilitation centers, places to educate kids about ways to make a living that aren't poaching, and magazine names to contact for publication. Months later, as the bike is worn in and some places have been crossed out, more have been added, and some are left for the next trip. She comes to a name, Nativa, an organization on the northeastern Colombian coast that's partnering with an indigenous people called the Kogi in order to further protect their homeland and the animals that live there. She points the bike north and opens the throttle. I needed to keep up with Janelle, so I rented a dirt bike in the coastal town of Santa Marta and strapped my backpack to it with a few borrowed bungee cords. I started the small engine and looked up. Rising above the city to almost 19,000 feet were the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Somewhere up there, hidden in the clouds, was the highest peak, only 14 miles away. I couldn't begin to comprehend the scale. I didn't have time. The engine warmed up quickly in the sticky heat and it was time to go. I jumped into traffic and my mind kicked into gear. I could feel the pavement in my spine and my eyes moved fast trying to keep me alive. Fingers twitched to shift, hips swerved the bike between cars. True chaos riding. 
a language of movement beyond rules and regulation. The sun started to set, and gaps in the trees brought views of the mountains tearing out of the Caribbean Ocean. The roads deepened, and I shifted down. Then the pavement ended. I began to pick my line through the wet rocks, roots, and mud. Miles ground out slowly as the engine screamed in protest of the steep grade. It was getting hard to see. Up ahead, the road just ended. Beyond the road were fields used for mass coca production in the drug trade. And beyond that, second growth forests faded into primary jungle. Above the jungle were high arid plateaus. And above the whole landscape were glaciated peaks that formed the center of Kogi territory. The Kogi are an ancient civilization that's been in the Sierra Nevadas for more than 4,000 years. They are not welcoming to outsiders because to them, foreigners are the bringers of destruction and disease. So they've chosen to stay isolated in the mountains in their societies that are without electricity and without modern comforts, and they feel that that is a better choice for them. They believe it's their job to protect the world, and they watch as we destroy the world with our greed for resources. For the last few decades, they've been caught in the crossfire between guerrillas, paramilitary troops, and drug traffickers. Now that the 52-year-long civil war is over on paper, Colombia's undeveloped lands, including Kogi territory, have become the front line for wildlife trafficking. Wild places that were once, you know, inhabited by the FARC or by other gorilla are now opening up and becoming accessible. So with that, there's also been increased deforestation, increased illegal mining, and increased poaching. Battling against the logging, mining, and poaching are scientists who are rushing to document the animals that need to be protected. With documentation of the animals that exist there, they're able to extend those protective areas. If the habitat is deemed protected, then hunting is illegal and they can enforce those laws. It doesn't mean that they will be enforced, but until those laws are set in place, there's no way that you can take that first step. Franz Flores is the director of the Nativa Foundation, and he constantly looked like he was ready for a hike. He always wore leather boots, light shorts, and a loose-fitting shirt. His eyes were hazel and kind, and when he spoke, his words were calculated and poetic. And he's been working with the Kogi for 16 years. It's taken him a really long time to establish trust in this sort of relationship with the Kogi. When you protect the habitat, you protect everything that lives there, but also the rights of the Kogi. So by protecting their rights, you protect the habitat. So it's, a, it's an amazing synergy between honoring and respecting and securing rights for the indigenous people while simultaneously protecting the habitat and all of the animals that live there. This is Franz. I'll be translating. I feel it's a marvelous opportunity 
to capitalize the contact that exists and put that in favor of diversity. At this moment, the central priority is to avoid the premature execution of diversity. Everything will end, clearly. Everything will end, and everything that is born will die, but not so rapidly. At least while I'm alive, I'll die first, before the tapers go extinct. They're very elusive and nocturnal, and we don't know a whole lot about them. Even though the taper has been around since the Eocene, you know, 20 million years, its numbers are dwindling very low, and the gestation period um, for the mother to have the baby is over a year. It's 13 to 14 months, and they only have one at a time. So if the numbers get too low, there could be no coming back. As we set off into the jungle, our main mission was to set up a camera trap to document tapir habitat so that the boundaries of the protected habitat could be extended. For the next few days, we carried our gear into Kogi territory and finally reached a base camp on the river, which is where we would be drinking from and bathing in. And that was, you know, our setting off point to our next location, which was a beautiful waterfall with very overgrown trails. And the Kogi had their machetes that they were leading us with bushwhacking through the jungle. We were with Franz. Along with him was a young Kogi boy, Camilo. He spoke a little bit of Spanish, so he was also our translator in addition to being our guide. And he's wonderful. He just smiles all the time. Camilo didn't know how old he was. In many ways, he was an adult. He could cook an entire meal over a fire and find his way through the jungle with ease. He was also an invaluable partner to Franz because he knew exactly where to find the fresh taper and jaguar tracks and the best spots to set up a camera trap. Despite the maturity, there was something still recognizable as teenaged. He wore a baseball hat and sometimes snuck earbuds in and listened to music. This all was very different than his father, who was a religious and cultural leader of the Kogi, named Mama Jose Miguel. So the mamas are like shamans. Their existence as mamas is divinely chosen. And as very young boys, they're taken away from the rest of their civilization to live in darkness. This darkness is made up of two nine-year periods meant to mirror the nine months spent in a mother's womb. In the darkness, they learn the values of their society and are taught that their purpose is to be a protector of the earth. I could see Mama Jose's footprints in the dust. Somewhere up ahead, he was leading the way through the jungle. We passed other Kogi on the trail, and sometimes they stopped and asked us where we were going. We held up our hands and showed them the finely woven string around our wrists that signified permission to be in Kogi territory. We said we were staying with Mama Jose, and they let us pass. I blinked through drips of sweat and thanked them. I could feel the heat in my skull. The Kogi were perfectly suited for this place. I squeezed lukewarm water out of my plastic water bottle while they drank out of cool streams with a leaf. My backpack was heavy with all the technology I thought I needed while they carried a machete and a bag that was mostly full of coca leaves. Their bare feet gripped the uneven ground while we tumbled and fell. 
When we reached Mama Jose's hut, we were finally able to cool down in a swimming hole. And at sunset, we climbed the hill above the hut and looked out over the Sierra Nevada. Over dinner, we talked about the Kogi relationship with animals and learned they believe that animals talk, think, and have souls just as humans do. Their outward appearance is simply different. For the next three days, we repeated this pattern. Wake up, swim, eat around the fire, hike through the heat, swim, place camera traps, learn from the Kogi, eat around the fire, sleep. After three days with Mama Jose Miguel and Franz and Camilo, it was time to walk out of the Sierra Nevada. When we reached the dirt road again, we loaded onto the backs of motorcycles and ripped down the twisted road back to the coast. Almost immediately, we began to reflect. For me, one of the most impactful visions that I have when I think about being with the Kogi is the contrast of seeing them, of being with them in a place like Taganga that's just been destroyed, basically. The nature has been ruined, and there's even further plans for more destruction. To see the Kogi in those places and to know that they still consider them sacred and seeing them still give thanks for that because they know that that's what their job is to do. They believe they are the caretakers of our earth. To see them in that sort of habitat and then to see them in their own territory that they've cared for, that they've nurtured and just have this desire to want to keep going into their territory because it's so beautiful. They really do believe health is the most important thing that we can ever have in this life. And to have health, we must care for the environment. And how do you use that lesson now as you move forward to continue fighting against wildlife trafficking? I think it's to continue helping those helpers, you know, continue to find people like Franz of Nativa, who's devoted so much of his life to helping to protect these lands, not just for the wildlife, but also for the indigenous people, for the Kogi. Because sometimes conservation projects can lock indigenous people out of their way of life, even when they've done so for many generations in a sustainable way. So I don't think that indigenous people and conservation projects should ever be at odds. I think there's a way that we can find harmony between those two things. And it's really sort of opened up my eyes to, to look for this and to want to help support it and protect their rights in my pursuits of protecting wildlife. Out of the jungle, we returned to a beach town. We found a hostel and plugged back into the modern world. As the sun set, a storm blew in from the ocean and shook our hostel. The winds howled and the power went out. Laying there in the dark, with the storm raging, I thought about what Janelle had said earlier, about being able to confront the darkness. It's uh, tough times that we're in for the planet and the wildlife. So for me, 
in the world of conservation, it's important to stay positive. But in addition, the challenges are inherent. So while you focus on the positives, you learn what the difficulties are and what the obstacles these people and projects face. So it's not like you're ignoring those things. You're diving deeper into them, but you're focusing on the successes and the solutions. No matter what the situation is, how dire, there's people helping and they need help. For me, it's worth it. If my only purpose is to leave a place better than when I found it, then so be it. Even if, even if it's a train running off the tracks. The storm cleared the next morning, and we eventually made our way back to Santa Marta. Janelle rode off to the next stop. I dropped off my dirt bike. At the airport, enclosed in steel and glass, I could see the mountains rising into the clouds. Somewhere in that vertical jungle, I could imagine the Kogi with their huts by streams and their lives tied to the landscape. Looking down at the beach, I thought of our time on the rock outcropping where we put our intentions into cotton from the high mountain plateaus. I understood that this trip was not going to change the world, and we were not going to stop poaching in the Sierra Nevada with a single act of setting up a camera trap. Instead, it was an opportunity to see how scientists and indigenous people can work together for conservation. It's not easy, and there are no simple solutions. Clearly, it's a long, winding road stretching into a darkening horizon. And while that thought might seem depressing, I felt the opposite. There were others who chose that road, no matter the difficulty, and that gave me hope. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who are proud to present Mountains of Storm. Yes, the classic film. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. With mud season upon us, don't shove your dirty mountain bike into the back of your car. Go to kuatracks.com and choose from their lineup sturdy, easy-to-use, good-looking roof racks and hitch racks. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support also comes from Vossen Brewing. Trivia, Settlers of Catan, yoga, live music, beyond crafting beer. Vossen has a variety of events going on at the Richmond Brewery. Follow them on Facebook to stay up to date on upcoming community gatherings. All right, Dirtbag Writers, we're looking for your thrilling, hilarious, poignant, maybe even all three stories of being outdoors. We are now accepting short submissions through November 2nd, so start typing 1,500 words or less, please, and email it to editor at ducttapethenbeer.com. For more details, go to the Write For Us tab at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. And while you're at it, be sure to follow the Dirtbag Diaries on social media for story callouts, episode announcements, and photos from the episodes and other radness. Thank you, Janelle, for sharing her story. To find out more, you can follow her on our Instagram at motogypsy or on our website, motogypsy.org. Music today from Hopeless Jack, The F'd Up Beat, Kai Engel, Little Glass Man, David Mumford, and Cloud9. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website. 
This episode was produced by Isaiah Branch Boyle, Becca Call, and me, Fitz Call. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.